You're listening to The Naked Pravda. This is Medusa's first and only English language podcast, so please don't be shy about recommending us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. Welcome to The Naked Pravda, a podcast that highlights how Medusa's top reporting intersects with the wider research and expertise that exists about Russia. If you listen to this show regularly, and I, I, I hope to gosh you do, that introduction is probably getting a little old. The same goes for this next part. It's the introduction to me. I am your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. I say this every episode for our are millions and billions of uh, new listeners because I want you to feel welcome and informed and certainly, you know, not late to the party. So stay stay a while, why don't you? On today's show, we'll be discussing euphemisms in Russian journalism when it comes to reporting on disasters, specifically gas explosions, which was the subject of an investigative report by Medusa's Alexei Kovalev in mid-February. Here we are, approaching mid-April, almost two months later, and the story is still relevant and still newsy, and not just because stuff is still blowing up all the time in Russia, but because the coronavirus pandemic represents a disaster on a whole other scale. So what am I talking about when I say euphemisms in reporting? Medusa's story from February focused on a trend in the Russian media that began late last year, when state news outlets increasingly started describing gas explosions as gas pops in their coverage, even when talking about incidents that caused major damage to life and property. We're talking about destroyed buildings and dead bodies here. In fact, the number of gas pops mentioned in news reports jumped from a few dozen stories in early 2017 to thousands of such reports by January 2020. Medusa's sources in the Putin administration and in Russia's security agencies, moreover, say this is the result of a targeted policy to introduce more favorable information conditions meant to avoid a public panic when reporting on things like gas explosions. One of the most familiar news euphemisms, in war reporting at least, is probably the term collateral damage. And it's not just a very bad Arnold Schwarzenegger movie from 2002. It's also one of those Orwellian phrases that was especially popular in the 1990s, in the Gulf War, in the Kosovo War, when the U.S. military used it to describe killing civilians in attacks on supposedly legitimate targets. Well, collateral damage is people who died because you dropped bombs on them or, you know, or killed in other ways in the course of the war. But collateral damage just sounds so much nicer. So there's all kinds of ways that, that language privileges certain groups and, and takes privilege away from other groups. That's Sarah Oates, an expert in political communication and democratization who teaches as a professor at the University of Maryland in the Philip Merrill College of Journalism. She's been on this podcast before. So you see, folks, this show is so wonderful that guests are even willing to return. It's a vote of confidence, I tell you. Anyway, I asked Dr. Oates how scholars approach the study of euphemisms like collateral damage and gas pops. So the notion of, of codes and, and coding and encoding and decoding in in news and, and other texts, it's it's an entire discipline. 
in academia all by itself. So this whole notion of the way that language reflects power and those in power get to set the terms of language and set the terms of debate, it's, it's an enormous way that people have of, of understanding why things are reported in the way they are. So you can kind of look at this from really a, a bird's eye, top-down view of saying that power in general dictates the sort of language that's used, uh, whether we're talking about whether someone is, is pro-life or anti-abortion. And that's just, just one example of, of the way that, that language makes distinctions and, and gives power to different groups about how to define things. Alexei Kovalev, the journalist who wrote Medusa's story about gas pops, says he started noticing the terminology in news headlines when he began seeing the dark humor it inspired on social media. A lot of people started noticing this on, on social media and highlighting these uh, quite ridiculous instances where uh, there's a there's a photograph on a, uh, on uh, on the Ria Novosti website or another state-owned agency uh, where there's just a, a smoke and rubble uh, and, and and this apparently according to the headline is a result of a pop klapok and uh, of course people uh, were ridiculing it and memifying it so there was a there were these memes with uh, you know nuclear mushroom clouds uh, and chlapok uh, uh, added to them. Um, this uh, it, it definitely gave a, a, a new a, a, gave birth to a new strain of really dark humor. One thing Alexei discovered when writing his story is that there actually is such a thing as a gas pop that's distinct from a gas explosion. They're both technical terms you can find in emergency manuals at various power companies and so on. A burst or a pop is the rapid combustion of a combustible mixture not accompanied, not accompanied, by the formation of compressed gases capable of destroying structures or installations. An explosion, meanwhile, is a rapid exothermic chemical transformation of an explosive environment accompanied by the release of energy and the formation of compressed gases capable of destroying structures or installations. A pop is, is, is an explosion that doesn't cause any structural damage. So it's loud and, uh, and it sets something alight, but it doesn't really des- destroy stuff. Well, whereas an explosion is, uh, is something that is uh, uh, powerful enough to cause significant physical damage. So yeah, it's a, it's 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 te- it's a it's a technical term. Alexei says terminology finds its way from press releases issued by government agencies into reports issued by state news agencies. Our emergency response ministry uses these terms in their press releases, and um, when they put out these press releases about these gas pops, editors at uh, state media they they kind of really just copy and paste these press releases uh, and uh, slap a headline on them and turn them into news stories uh, without adding much uh, context or detail. Uh, so they're just kind of doing, doing, doing this automatically because some people in presidential administration told the emergency ministry's press service to use the word pop to, uh, to keep the, uh, you know, the, the nasty stuff, the explosions uh, away from the, from the headlines. This isn't the only euphemism that slips from press releases into news reports. Like other examples of government newspeak, such as saying saturation or pataplenia instead of flooding, navadienia, and flaring up, vasgarenia, instead of fire, pajar. The term gas pop 
is part of the Russian presidential administration's information policy, sources told Medusa. It's a deliberate policy of masking uh, it's, so, so it's, uh, masking these bad news with the aim of creating something that the, our sources call which uh, uh, in English sounds uh, kind of uh, more bland. I guess that would be uh, favorable information conditions or something. But yeah, it's basically to uh, keep the uh, bad news away by neutering the language of these news. Because the people on top of uh, you know, Russia's hierarchy, they don't venture out too much in, in, in the world. So all they can see is the, uh, is the daily press clippings that their uh, aides uh, compile for them. And uh, it doesn't look good when these press clippings are full of explosions and death. Alexei says there are euphemisms at play in the reporting about coronavirus as well, though officials have been more transparent than your typical anti-Kremlin oppositionist would probably admit. The same logic is applied to the coronavirus uh, crisis. So there's a lot of been, uh, I'm seeing a lot of uh, speculation online, especially in, uh, in non-Russian sources that, you know, Russia's uh, uh, death toll from coronavirus is, uh, is uh, kind of unbelievably low compared to other countries like, like, like Italy or the United States. So it, Something is amiss, people, uh, people are saying. Some, they must be hiding bodies there, uh, which I don't find plausible myself, as, because I, of all people, as an investigative journalist, I would have found out if there were mortuaries stacked with bodies uh, somewhere or uh, mass graves popping up on the edge of town. People would have noticed. People would have noticed and posted it on social media. We would have verified it and, and, uh, and made a huge story out of it. So, so n- nobody in Russia really finds that story believable that uh, the Russian government is is uh, uh, hiding the real death toll. But w- what the people in Russia are wondering about is the um, is the stats where you have when you have this curve of people. This example hospital in Moscow, which treats the most um, um, most of the COVID nineteen patients in Russia, yeah, it's uh, <coughs> Surgeon General puts out daily statistics about about you know people admitted to the hospital and discharged. So. There's one term that keeps popping up. So you have people with coronavirus. That's that's clear. But then you have a much much larger number of people with something that they call vnibalnichnya pneumonia. I looked it up, and they, uh, as far as I, uh, I as far as I understand, it's a, it's a technical term as well, and it's, uh, and it translates as community acquired pneumonia. So it's something that you have. Uh, it's it's vague, but it's also you know, manipulative enough. Uh, uh, it's, it sounds manipulative enough. Like you t- you're taken by uh, to a hospital and uh, your diagnosis is community-acquired pneumonia. And people are wondering you know, how many of these uh, community-acquired pneumonia cases are actually COVID because COVID, what the, what, uh, what, uh, the coronavirus does, uh, it destroys your lungs in the worst cases and you have pneumonia. And when you die of, of coronavirus-related complications, in many cases, it's pneumonia. And people are wondering if they if they are actually ascribing some of these COVID deaths to uh, to this vague technical term community acquired pneumonia. How much of this is like directly bad intentions, and how much of it is just sort of the way that that reporting happens? Like you mentioned before, that a lot of news agencies essentially just sort of regurgitate the official press reports issued by state agencies. But at the so in the in the story itself that you wrote about the gas pops and the gas explosions, I got the sense that you were almost hedging your bets because you're you know you're floating multiple theories. You're saying, well, they do report 
you know, just the sort of newspeak that filters down from the press releases. But then there's also, there are also sort of, you know, rumors and, and anonymous sources saying that the Kremlin has direct briefings with the heads of press services where, you know, Putin's first deputy chief of staff, Alexei Gromov, is actually issuing direct instructions. But then we're also, t- you know, learning that some reporters are just saying that they're just playing it safe and relying on conservative language until they know more in a disaster situation. And then when it comes to coronavirus, you know, the, maybe they're they're recording deaths or they're recording, ca- uh, you know, cases as pneumonia or something else because they want to keep the official numbers down for COVID. Or maybe it's just that the COVID tests are not very accurate and there's too many false negatives. And so now they're going to treat them together, but they're still, they, can, they can't necessarily diagnose them with COVID if they don't have a positive test result. But, you know, they're aware that it could be a coronavirus patient, even if they can't get a positive test result. Like how much of this is sort of malicious and how much of it is the consequence of either procedures or a lack of resources or something like that? You asked me to measure it. I would say uh, uh, 80% of it is just uh, um uh, complacence, you know, this is the, it's just the way things work in, in, in Russia. So, uh, I was, I was, uh, I was really hoping that it was more straightforward in the, in a Russian original, but the gas pops, they tr- trickle down. So the, they, they, they formulate policy uh, at the top level and it trickles down to uh, individual editors who are just doing it in, on, automatically. An editor tells them their superior, tells them once that you should use the language exactly as it appears in the, in the, in the press release. So they say, okay, boss, and they just go on with it and uh, uh, never think about it again. <laughs> because all they want to do is just get through the day and keep their job. So it's, not, it's kind of not there. It's not there. It's, 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 it's above their pay grade to ask why it, sh- why it should be a pop when it's obviously an explosion. It's the same with doctors who are, they probably have these, they probably have instructions that they follow. They may be, they may be, they may be absurd. They have instructions and protocols. And they may seem absurd to us, uh, but they have this sort of internal logic that they follow. Alexei says many in the state media were slow to realize the seriousness of the coronavirus pandemic. But journalists of all stripes now have dropped the euphemisms for the most part and have started talking straight with the public. I mean, those talking heads on TV back in back in January, they were very dismissive about, you know, the whole coronavirus thing and, you know, pretty much like Fox News calling it just a regular seasonal flu that's going to uh, that's going to pass and, and, and kill uh, fewer people than you know car crashes do or regular flu does but then uh, you could see that uh, in early march they really started taking the whole same thing seriously actually uh, they are doing a fairly good job covering the crisis on, on russian state media they're not down uh, really downplaying it no they are in full crisis mode, and they are telling people to stay home uh, because it's dangerous. It's very, it's it, it's very contagious. Because look at this, look at ICUs filling up. No, they're they're actually saying that. So I don't see any reason for them, for Russian authorities, to be uh, involved in some kind of major cover-up operation uh, to play down the nu- the numbers of uh, COVID victims. No, they are actually making it very clear that this is dangerous. This is a public health crisis and you should follow, you should really strictly follow the rules. Uh, and yeah, I, I can see that it's working. Like I, I'm, I'm seeing from my window that my, uh, that my usually busy street is, uh, is virtually empty now. So people are staying inside because the authorities told them so. I asked Sarah Oates how this relationship between the authorities and the press typically plays out across various political regimes. 
In authoritarian states, you might expect governments simply to tell journalists what to say, which is some of what we've observed with the Russian media and Alexander Gromov in the Kremlin, for instance. In liberal democracies, that's not supposed to be possible. But even here, the authorities have plenty of power to, you know, manipulate the press. When we think of coordinated messages and euphemistic narratives, should we be imagining secret phone calls in the middle of the night? Notes, you know, scribbled with instructions about what to say, passed under the table? How does this sort of thing actually work, generally speaking? When we think about who gets to say what and when and where and how, there's, there's often the sort of assumption, you know, sort of this deep state assumption that the state is telling journalists what to say. And I have to say that that's pretty rare, even in authoritarian regimes. It's more kind of a, a shared understanding of one hand washing the other. Um, and that's how you, you wind up with that. There's been other situations in which if, for example, uh, the White House comes up with a really compelling frame, such as war on terror, which the Bush White House did come up with uh, post 9-11, then that gets picked up by lots and lots of media organizations. And it becomes enormously difficult to say, wait a minute, um, the actual terrorists that we're concerned about aren't in the country we're invading, which was true. <laughs> but it wasn't so much that a whole bunch of memos were sent to American journalists compelling them to do this, as it was this this really resonant narrative that people wanted to get on board with. When Johnny comes marching home again, hurrah, hurrah, we'll give him a hearty welcome then, hurrah, hurrah, the men will cheer, the boys will shout, the ladies say we'll all turn out, and we'll all feel gay when Johnny comes marching home, and we'll all feel gay when Johnny comes marching home. You know, back before I was a media scholar and I was a journalist, I would have um, laughed at the idea that anyone could tell me what to do, right? I would have been very skeptical about that. Now that I've studied certain media campaigns, particularly the war on terror campaign, you know, that came right out of the White House. And it was an extremely compelling and powerful frame that drove a lot of public opinion and, of course, re-entering the war um, in Iraq. So I'm much more... Um, let's say, accepting of the idea that really good strategic communication campaigns can influence the way that things are framed. That being said, uh, there's plenty of times when frames or the ways of looking at things emerge much more organically from the situation. And we're in a really interesting situation right now with coronavirus, because what we really need now is a kind of resolute frame. And that's not being promulgated by anyone, uh, particularly. So instead, you see a lot of chaotic framing and a lot of confusion. Does this like this fight over language from from the perspective of sort of like power privilege and euphemisms and codes and all that? Does it is it most salient when it comes to talk of disasters, or is this something like is this? Can you have this level discussion about really kind of anything reported in the news of public concern? You know, it's really interesting about how people approach decoding and coding and encoding in in the news. I'm a big proponent of looking at it during disasters because my feeling is when you have a big disaster, whether it's 9-11 or the coronavirus or, or whatever it is, you get a lot of, you get almost like big bang of media coverage, right? So you get a, a lot of almost chaotic coverage. 
So I think in that way, you can you can see a lot of the processes that are often kind of hidden underneath as as journalists struggle to find ways to patrol the boundaries of culture, as it were, because that's what journalists sort of do when they're in situations in which the rules aren't clear and the frames aren't set. The, the language gets very diverse and very interesting. So there's a really good media scholar named Doris Graeber, and, and she wrote about this idea of crisis coverage. And she pointed out that in, in crises, you have all this need for news, but you don't really have a lot of news. So what happens is you just sort of fill it in with anything you can find. So there's kind of a lot of garbage out there. So I think that when you when you see that kind of thing going on, it's sort of almost a much more natural play of language. It's untamed language. And I think in that you get a lot of, of interesting things being said and suggested that you wouldn't see in normal times. It's almost as though you can kind of peel back, a kick over the rock, right, and see what's underneath. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, a podcast that highlights how Medusa's top reporting intersects with the wider research and expertise that exists about Russia. On today's show, we spoke to Professor Sarah Oates and Medusa investigative journalist Alexei Kovalyov about euphemisms in disaster reporting. On our next episode, we'll look at the effects of Russia's coronavirus quarantine on the country's justice system and prisons. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa, our first and only English-language show. And I hope you'll recommend us to your friends, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Thank you for listening, and come back soon. Mm-hmm.